Like other world leaders here, I'm dismayed at the US decision to pull out of the Paris Agreement. And I've urged President Trump to rejoin. Good luck with that lady. I mean, Madam Prime well, Minister. I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. Just one of the reasons. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Mm-hmm. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM KSO in Cozy Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN 94.1 FM, Palinville, New York's WLPP 102.9 FM, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. The progressive voice of Minnesota, and maybe the coolest place uh, on our uh, list of air affiliates today. We're also streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the internet, which is always cool. On the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us. Yes, we are back. We are back after uh, one week of uh, sweltering in the desert, but we're happy to be back in Los Angeles sweltering here instead it seems to be a recurring theme this summer. at least uh, yeah if you're going to be on this side of the uh, <laughs> mississippi it seems like that's the recurring theme all summer long a lot of sweltering ahead uh my thanks to angie coiro of in deep radio for uh, filling us for us while we were off for the week i heard uh, i heard one of the shows wherein she complained that this was supposed to be a slow news week over the summer you know with congress on recess over the fourth of july holiday and all <clears throat> well Newsflash, Angie, there are no such things as slow news weeks anymore, I, I'm sorry to say. Uh, but much appreciate the uh, the time off and the great shows, by the way, with great guests uh, in our absence. If you missed any of them, you can, as ever, download them for free at bradblog.com or your favorite podcast site like iTunes, etc., etc. So thank you again, Angie. But yes, we are back. Desi Doyen, are you rested and uh, rested up and ready, or are you already flagging <laughs> from the heat? Well, I hate to say it, but I'm already flagging because, boy, the volcano of news, it just it never stops. The, the news, the volcano of uh, hot air, oh, yeah. nothing but volcanoes. Uh, coming up, you thought the uh, U.S. House special election in Georgia last month was over? The most expensive U.S. House race in history. You thought that was over? You thought that despite the Democratic candidate being ahead of his Republican opponent in all of the pre-election polls and then reportedly losing by about four points on election night on June 20, as reported by the state's 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting system, you thought that election was over? 
Well, it's not over quite yet, uh, at least according to the bipartisan group of plaintiffs who have now filed suit, filed an election contest in the state of Georgia to toss the results of that special U.S. House election in Georgia's 6th District. We will discuss that lawsuit with one of its plaintiffs, a Republican, by the way. Momentarily, you're not going to want to miss that. In the meantime, uh, you know... (laughs) No matter what you do, uh, sometimes uh, the world just moves on without you. In many cases, we were off for a week and the world was just moving on without us. Um, And that's also uh, true for us being off a week, but it's also true for Donald Trump, who essentially pulling the U.S. out of the leadership role that it it has held really in the world since at least uh, the Second World War. The world is moving on with or without Donald Trump, with or without the U.S. And that was apparent during and after last week's G20 summit uh, meeting in Hamburg, Germany. Last week in the lead-up to that uh, G20 summit in Hamburg, German Chancellor Angela Merkel stood by her suggestion that Europe can no longer entirely rely on the U.S. and declared that Germany and China can work together to help calm the world's problems. Yes, that's right. Germany is now working with China. The hell with the U.S. She's got a reliable partner, I guess, in China. Welcoming Chinese President Xi Jinping to uh, Berlin before the summit kicked off last week. Merkel said their pre-summit meeting was a good opportunity to expand and broaden our extensive strategic relations She said, it's a great pleasure for us to welcome you here today at a time of turmoil in the world when China and Germany can make a contribution to calming down this turmoil somewhat. Yes, the world's moving on uh, without us one way or another. The G20 summit came amid unease in Europe, according to AP, about the Trump administration's America first approach to trade and other issues. After her last encounter with Donald Trump in late May, Merkel had said the times in which we can fully count on others are somewhat over, as I have experienced in the past few days. Uh, She was asked in an interview with uh, the German weekly Die Zeit whether she would repeat that comment. Now she replied, yes, exactly that way. Oh, boy. Uh, So she's moving on. It is, she says, for example, open whether we can and should in the future rely on the U.S. investing so much as it has so far in the United Nations work, in Middle East policy, in European security policy, or in peace missions in Africa. She told the paper she conceded that uh, we don't we don't have a legal claim to the Americans committing themselves everywhere in the world. The U.S. will probably not engage in Africa to the extent that would be necessary, particularly since she says, particularly since they barely have oil interests anymore in Africa and the Arab world. She's coming right out and saying, hey, the U.S., they got their own oil now. They don't need to worry about it. Uh, no and more. that pretty much the U.S. is only interested in oil and that all of that talk about human rights and reproductive rights and helping developing countries and all that. That was just talk. They don't give a damn. We don't give a damn. It's about the oil. Always has been. Uh, Merkel reiterated that the Trump administration's decision to withdraw from the Paris Agreement was, quote, extraordinarily regrettable 
and noted that many U.S. states and cities want to continue participating. You know, so this is kind of amazing. This is, you know, the the, the chancellor of Germany, one of our top allies, perhaps the uh, most powerful nation in the world at this point, uh, Germany, at least economically. Uh, You got Angela Merkel talking about it being regrettable. You heard Theresa May uh, at the top of the show there, that opening quote, uh, complaining about the U.S. leaving the Paris Agreement. And, and T- Theresa May, she's no lefty. She's no liberal. She's no tree hugger. Uh, <laughs> you know, she's uh, the conservative party prime minister in England, all complaining about Donald Trump and what and the direction of the U.S. at this point. Uh, Merkel also pointed to a broader difference between Germany and the U.S. administration on globalization. She said, while we seek chances to cooperate for everyone's benefit, globalization is seen in the American administration as a process which isn't about win-win situations, but now about winners and losers. Wonder where she gets that uh, language from. We, uh, we have to take the configurations as they are, says Merkel. At the same time, the, dif- the differences must not be swept under the carpet, she added. Now, that was as the G20 was just getting underway last week. And by the time it was through over this past weekend, the differences between the U.S. under the Trump administration and the rest of the entire world were decidedly not swept under the carpet. As the Washington Post reported over the weekend as the summit wrapped, President Trump and other world leaders on Saturday emerged from two days of talks unable to resolve key differences on core issues like climate change and globalization, fueling worries that global summits may be ineffective in the Trump era. The divisions at the G20 summit were most bitter on climate change, where 19 leaders formed a unified front against Trump. Um, But even in areas of nominal compromise like trade, top European leaders said they have little faith that an agreement forged today could hold tomorrow. In other words, they don't even trust the U.S. anymore. Our world has never been so divided, said French President Emmanuel Macron, uh, as the talks broke up over the weekend. Centripetal Centripetal forces have never been so powerful, he said. Our common goods have never been so threatened. Macron said world leaders found common ground on terrorism, but were otherwise split on numerous important topics. Even within the Western world, there are real divisions and uncertainties that just didn't exist a few short years ago, Macron said. He added, I will not concede anything in the direction of those who are pushing against multilateralism. Uh, We need better coordination, more coordination. We need those organizations that were created out of the Second World War. Uh, obviously referring to NATO and the UN and so forth. Otherwise, we will be moving back toward narrow-minded nationalism. Merkel, uh, who had hosted the summit in the port city of Hamburg, uh, did little to hide her own disappointment about the U.S. actions on climate change after the summit. Uh, She said, um, wherever there is no consensus that can be achieved, disagreement has to be made clear. Unfortunately, and I deplore this, she said, the United States of America left the climate agreement. I'm gratified to note that the other 19 members of the G20 feel that the Paris Agreement is irreversible. So now we're in a not G20 anymore. It's G19 plus one. Exactly right. That's it. 
We are on the outside looking in. And those are not all uh, Western uh, countries, by the way. The, you know, the, uh, Russia is included in that. China is included in that. The world is moving on without us. AP's headline at the end of the uh, at the end of the summit, Trump against the world. All nations but U.S. back climate agreement at G20. German Chancellor Angela Merkel uh, says 19 members of the group of 20 have reaffirmed the Paris Climate Accord as irreversible. She said uh, that the summit's final statement that they issued together takes account of the U.S. position rejecting the climate deal. That leaves the U.S. out as, uh, as, the, as the odd one out, says AP, after President Donald Trump announced his intent to withdraw the U.S. from the agreement. The accord uh, aims to lower emissions of greenhouse gases, scientists say, cause global warming. And cause Desi and I out here in Los Angeles to get really, really cranky this time of year. <laughs> Merkel called uh, that position regrettable. President Vladimir Putin said Russia will meet its obligations under the Paris Climate Agreement. Even Russia, even is Russia, going to. even China, all of the everybody, everybody else but us. Uh, speaking at a meeting with. Uh, the French president on the sidelines of the Group 20 summit in Hamburg, Putin said that, quote, we honor the Paris Agreement. He added that Russia has made decisions related to the implementation of the deal and intends to implement them. French President Macron hailed Putin's pledge as very important. Russia is the world's fifth largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Uh, we are, what are we, number two? We're number two now. Behind China. We're the, we're the highest per capita, per person emitter, as I recall. Is right. That right. So so China is the most overall. We're right. the most per capita and the most historically from the beginning. Uh, we've been doing this the longest time. Yes. We've been screwing up the planet for the longest yeah, time. We've yeah. contributed the most. Uh, so Russia is the uh, fifth largest emitter of greenhouse gases. They are, of course, among the 195 countries that signed that 2015 Paris Agreement. So Russia, China, the rest of the world are in. But for the first time since the Second World War, the U.S. is out on the outside looking in. Uh, White House officials, uh, for their part, according to The Washington Post, had uh, measured expectations for the summit, hoping to explain Trump's priorities, find some compromises, even small ones. Their assessment of the outcome was sharply different from that of Merkel and Macron and May. Uh, senior White House official who was not authorized to speak on the record said Saturday before Trump departed for the U.S., quote, it's been a really great success. <laughs> well, maybe on their on their terms, it might be. We are going know. to get some of the priorities of the administration out of the summit, uh, the official said. Trump did not hold a news conference following the summit, breaking with tradition of previous presidents who typically use that opportunity to shape the narrative coming out of uh, those kind of things. White House officials pointed instead to several minor changes to the G20's official statement on trade policy, saying it better reflects the Trump administration's point of view. The, uh, the G20 countries said in their joint statement, we recognize that the benefits of international trade and investment have not been shared widely enough. We need to better enable our people to seize the opportunities. That sort of language, uh, similar language, was not in the G20 agreement in, uh, in 2016 before Trump's election. Uh, so that's it. So much winning. So much winning. Uh, Can you handle all that winning? Yes. And uh, sometimes, as I said, the world moves on without you. And it is moving on. Um, 
without U.S. Well, without U.S. automakers, apparently, uh, at least without encouragement from uh, uh, the government for the U.S. automakers, as Donald Trump has rolled back or at least is attempting to roll back those uh, the new fuel efficiency standards? Yes, it's now in the process of being uh, officially withdrawn and rewritten or altogether scrapped, but right now it's still in the public comment and, and public uh, rulemaking Period. process. Yeah. yeah, well, in the meantime, uh, Volvo will begin producing electric motors on all of its cars beginning in 2019, becoming the first major automaker to forego traditional engines that rely exclusively on internal combustion. Remember how they made fun of Al Gore? I know you do, Desiree, for declaring the end of the internal combustion engine. They all (laughs) thought that was uh, hysterical, hilarious. hilarious. Well, here we go. Volvo is beginning to do that. The Swedish company, which has been making cars since 1927, said last week that the decision was prompted by the wishes of customers, describing it as one of the most significant moves by any car maker. CEO Hakan Samuelson said the shift to electric motors would strengthen our brand image, which is a lot about protecting what is important for customers, he said. Wow, listening to their actual customers. It's amazing. Maybe the American car companies should try that. Nah. Volvo Cars said it aims to reach its target of selling 1 million electrified cars by 2025 with a range of models, including fully electric vehicles and hybrid cars. Samuelson said this announcement marks the end of the solely combustion engine-powered car. People increasingly demand electrified cars, and we want to respond to our customers' current and future needs. Meanwhile, the Trump administration expressed hopes that U.S. car makers would start fueling cars with coal. <laughs> Sorry, no, not not really. But hey, that's about where we are <laughs> oh, in this. Going to say, wait, what? you thought that could have been and, right? You know, these days that could be that's, a real story. Uh, that's about where we are in wow. this world moving forward without us. Uh, too bad, too bad you don't power uh, cars with fuel. We'd be in uh, with uh, with coal. We'd be in great shape. Uh, Volvo ha- said that its long-range models could travel 500 kilometers, that's 310 miles on a single charge using current existing technology that we have today. We've been able to do this for a while now. Nonetheless, they are looking forward uh, to finding suppliers for new and better batteries. Um, The uh, uh, Omrick Green, senior vice president in research and development, said we're looking at more suppliers in the market today, and that will be a key part of being competitive going forward to always stick with the most successful and innovative supplier. What? No coal? We are spending time on coal when we should be spending time on what the world actually wants, where the world is going, where Where the the world is is going, going, where the market is going without us. Samuelson, who acknowledged that the company had been skeptical about electrification only two years ago, said things changed. He says things have moved faster. Customer demand is increasing. This is an attractive car that people want to have. Um, So there you go. They are moving forward. Will the American car companies jump in and do the same? Uh, Volvo, uh, which since 2010 has been owned, by the way, by a, a Chinese firm. And they will launch five fully electric cars between 2019 and 2021. Five different models. Also plans to supplement them with a range of gasoline and diesel plug-in hybrids. Options on all models will include a hybrid option, uh, which the company said would be one of the broadest electrified car offerings of any car maker. 
Um, so there you go. Good news. The Swedish automaker is getting it. The Swedish automaker owned by China is getting it. We don't seem to be getting it yet. Speaking of not getting it yet, um, Colorado Politics reported last week this great article by Ernest Lunning that was republished in the Georgia Gazette uh, before a tiny stub version was written by the AP and, and ran in the New York Times. Uh, it starts out this way. A group of Georgia voters and a good government watchdog organization filed a lawsuit Monday asking a judge to overturn the results of last month's 6th Congressional District Special Election and scrap the state's voting system. We will have one of the plaintiffs in that lawsuit, who, uh, and we will explain why it's being filed. Uh, it's a bipartisan lawsuit seeking to toss out the results and more. We'll talk about that with one of those plaintiffs in that suit right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't go away. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. The devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sewing on a fiddle and playing it hot, and the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, Boy, let me tell you what. Yeah, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. For some reason, my upcoming guest uh, requested that tune as our opening tune. For some reason, I don't understand. We'll find out why uh, shortly. Uh, Let me start here. The DNC's, the Democratic National Committee's latest finance committee newsletter announced that Quote, the DNC has been hard at work organizing, campaigning and resisting after having announced on May 16th that this would be resistance summer, what the party described as their largest grassroots effort to date in hopes of strengthening the Democratic Party from the ground up. They have held days of action, including 120 events in 50 states, and they say they have raised over six hundred thousand dollars and recruited some 100 organizers to attend training sessions in Washington, D.C., and they vow to uh, to find new ways of connecting with voters by engaging in a 12 months a year every zip code engagement strategy in order to win back Congress in 2018 and the White House in 2020. Well, that's swell. Uh, but they just had an, uh, an election or two, a few special house elections that they seem to be uh, moving on from. The letter goes on to speak to recent U.S. House special elections, most recently in South Carolina and in Georgia, where in that state's 6th congressional district, the most expensive U.S. House race in our nation's history resulted in the Democrat reportedly losing by about four points despite almost every single pre-election poll finding that the Democratic candidate, John Ossoff, was ahead of his Republican opponent, Georgia's former Secretary of State, Karen Handel. Uh, In fact, he was said to be ahead of her by anywhere from one to seven percentage points in all of those pre-election polls. 
But when the results from Georgia came in on the night of June 20, Handel was announced the winner based on results from the state's 100% unverifiable, wildly vulnerable, easily manipulated, often just inaccurate touchscreen voting systems made and deployed across the entire state, uh, the entire state of Georgia, by a now-out-of-business company named Diebold Election Systems. Yes, you may have heard of them. The company's assets are now owned partly by a Canadian firm named Dominion Voting and partly by the nation's largest private election system vendor named ES&S. In South Carolina, Democrats lost that U.S. House special election as well. That state also uses 100% unverifiable, wildly vulnerable, easily manipulated, often inaccurate touchscreen voting systems, those made by ES&S. The DNC's newsletter states, We didn't win in Georgia and South Carolina, but we are still proud of our efforts. And then they move on to the next set of elections coming up in 2018, declaring we're ready to get right back to work. But in truth, the DNC has no idea if they actually won or lost in either of those two states. In fact, nobody does, thanks to the 100% unverifiable voting systems that they used in both states. In the only verifiable votes cast in Georgia's 6th district, the paper mail-in absentee ballot, the Democrat Ossoff reportedly defeated the Republican handle by a nearly 2 to 1 ratio. And yet, even with that, and despite all of the talk of late of the possibility of the 2016 election having been hacked, and the vulnerability of our nation's computerized voting and tabulation systems, and the supposed concerns from Democrats about Donald Trump's so-called Election Integrity Commission, which is really a fraudulent voter fraud commission, the DNC nonetheless seems to have just moved on from the reported losses in South Carolina and Georgia. That's um, disturbing, or at least it should be, because just prior to the June 20th election in Georgia, we reported on a lawsuit that had been filed there by an election integrity group and a number of local voters. The complaint sought to force Georgia Republican Secretary of State Brian Kemp to allow voters to use paper ballots rather than unverifiable voting systems in light of news that the Center for Elections at Georgia's Kennesaw State University which is contracted to do all of the programming for all of Georgia's voting and tabulation and voter registration systems and, and has been a longtime defender of that Diebold voting system, by the way, reports that that center itself, the Kennesaw Center, had itself been the victim of a massive data breach in early March prior to the April primary election in the Georgia 6th District Special House election. The breach resulted in an FBI investigation and news that millions of voter registration records had been breached in the state's database. That news came on the heels of several other security violations and very serious concerns in that 6th district race. We discussed that lawsuit on the show in the days just before the uh, June 20th election in Georgia with Marilyn Marks. She's the head of the election integrity organization that served as one of the plaintiffs. Unfortunately, the case was dismissed just before the election, largely on technical grounds. But just after uh, the case was uh, dismissed, the suit got a whole lot of attention when Politico's Kim Zetter ran a stunning feature article revealing that the breach of the election data at Kennesaw State University in March was far more disturbing than originally understood. In fact, last August in 2016, 
The head of Kennesaw State's uh, Center for Elections, Merle King, had been notified by a data security researcher that the voter registration database, as well as passwords to the voting system itself, were vulnerable to the public on a public web server. This was last August, August 2016. According to Zetter at Politico, some 15 gigabytes of data were discovered just sitting there unprotected on the server by a data security researcher. He informed the center about the vulnerability and was told by uh, the uh, center's director, Merle King, that it would be taken care of and that he shouldn't tell anybody else about it. That researcher, Logan Lamb, a 29-year-old former cybersecurity expert with the federal government's Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee, told Politico that he was stunned to learn that the data was still available on the same unsecured servers this past March, seven months after he had informed Kennesaw State, when a colleague of his decided to drop by to check to see if that data was still there, and sure enough it was, and that we now know was the massive data breach that occurred at the beginning of March. It was all a disturbing reminder uh, of the case, uh, Marilyn Marx's case, that was tossed out just days earlier that might have prevented a 100% unverifiable U.S. House election with results that nobody can actually verify as reflecting the will of the voters. That lawsuit had sought paper ballots in this election. And yet, with all of these concerns, Democrats at the DNC are moving on. But the election integrity advocates who filed the suit are not moving on, and at least not yet. They have filed another suit seeking to toss the results of the June 20th election and hold another election, this time on verifiable paper ballots, and, if I understand it correctly, to decertify those godforsaken unverifiable touchscreen systems once and for all in the state of Georgia. On July 4th, a day after um, the suit was filed and a day that most folks probably didn't notice for some reason because, you know, July 4th, the Associated Press reported on the new lawsuit citing Georgia's electronic touchscreen voting systems as so riddled with problems that the results of the most expensive house race in U.S. history should be tossed out and a new election held, according to the lawsuit filed by the government watchdog group and six Georgia voters. Joining us to discuss the latest lawsuit is the head of that government watchdog group and the woman whose initial complaint before the election was unfortunately all but ignored, uh, at least by Democrats and certainly by Republicans the last time around. That's Marilyn Marks. She's an expert advocate for free and fair elections as executive director uh, director of the Coalition for Good Governance. They recently changed their name from the Rocky Mountain Foundation as they spread their wings. The Coalition is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization committed to fair elections and government transparency. In 2009, as a Republican, after her narrow loss to become the mayor of Aspen, Marx discovered the vulnerabilities in Colorado's election systems firsthand and began devoting herself full time over the subsequent, what now, eight years to election integrity litigation and lobbying efforts to make elections more transparent and verifiable. And did I say she was a Republican when she ran for mayor? I don't know if I did or not, but she is. Marilyn Marks, welcome back to the broadcast. <laughs> Thank you so much, Brad. It's great to be with you. Great to have you here. All right, your lawsuit, uh, boy, it's maddening that the last one was dismissed, uh, and then just days later it gets all of this attention as sort of, uh, hey, we tried to tell you so. 
Uh, but your your new s- lawsuit, let's talk about that for the moment. As I understand it, you're seeking three things. Summarize those three things very quickly, and then we can d- dive into some of the specific concerns. Okay. So the first thing is, as you mentioned already, that we are seeking to overturn the results of the 6th District Special Election. And um, to have the court say, this was void from the beginning, mm-hmm. you need a new election. Um, secondly, we are saying that these, this equipment absolutely cannot meet Georgia's statutes right now, and it cannot be used going forward, not even in the municipal elections coming up in November. And third, we are asking that the court order Secretary of State Kemp to reexamine the equipment, just as citizens had asked back in May before the, uh, before the June election. They had demanded under a provision of the statutes for him to reexamine the equipment, and he refused. So those are the three key things. Mm-hmm. But, yes, we want to see these paperless, unverifiable, anybody's guess who won equipment um, gone from Georgia. What, what is uh, your main concern right now about the results as reported from June 20th? Is there a specific uh, uh, you know, anomaly that you've seen that is of concern? What, 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 is your, what is the main concern here? Nobody can know whether there's an anomaly, Brad, because the results are so unverifiable. No one can really say with any type of credibility Oh, well, these, these two precincts, you know, he came in um, less than the exit polls would say. No, it is the very fact that the system had been opened to extreme risk. Um, as we now know from reading Logan Lamb's affidavit and that whole story, mm-hmm. as well as all of the many risks that we know that the system was already subject to, there is just no way to be able to rely on the results and um, and say that the results can can be determinable in any way. And, and I, you know, people for years have been uh, calling these things 100% unverifiable uh, voting systems. Uh, they really are. I mean, there's no way really to go back and check to make sure that any of these votes were, were correct, other than the absentee paper ballots, right. uh, on which uh, Ossoff, the Democrat, was said to have won two to one versus... Uh, the unverifiable votes where he apparently lost by four points. Does, does that concern you in any way? Have, and by the way, have, have those paper ballots even been verified as being accurately recorded by the system? Um, no, um, they, they have not um, been verified because that is not provided for in Georgia law. Um, it would take a contest, such mm-hmm. as the one we were, we're having, it would take a contest before the court or anyone could count the paper ballots or do anything other than just run the memory card back through the system, which you know is a total waste of time. But, um, uh, of course, we are not asking the court to just look at those paper ballots as an indication of who won, because it was such a small percentage of the vote mm-hmm. that there is really no proof there. The, the large, yes, of course, um, you know, um, one can argue that, that it's strange to see the absentee ballots have such a different result than the mm-hmm. um, election day and early voting ballots on the DREs. But we're really not trying to claim that, you can, that there's any type of credibility in the DREs in any way. 
and um, I don't want to get into a political argument of, uh-huh. oh, who had the best ground game on absentee ballots. Right. Our argument is, look, you just don't know. And this system, which was supposed to be, even under Georgia law, extremely well protected from um, malicious hacks, from uh, lack of security, uh, from uh, human error, from errors happening in the software. The, the system was supposed to be protected, even though it was unverifiable. Well, now all of those protections have completely dissolved and disappeared because they did not comply with the rules over the years, and certainly we know now in the last year that um, all security defenses were just completely down. And when They're you, meaningless. Yeah, I mean, when you say they're, you know, supposedly secure, um, supposedly according to whom? I mean, has the has the Secretary of State Brian Kemp or uh, Kennesaw State uh, Merle King, head of their uh, Center for Elections uh, there, uh, have any of them issued any sort of certification that the systems are protected from outside <laughs> manipulation? No, but they've issued lots of press statements saying that, um, that, oh, they're totally secure, totally secure. They're not connected to the Internet. Well, Logan Lamb showed, showed differently because he got in on the public website, mm-hmm. as did his colleague a few months later, and, in fact, looked at passwords for the voting equipment and looked at the databases mm-hmm. on which all of the election materials were there and could have been manipulated, saw training videos, where people were being trained to connect machines and components to the Internet. So Brian Kemp has um, only issued a lot of press statements and certainly no certification of the equipment to say that it is safe and accurate. Interestingly, the Georgia state statute requires the Secretary of State to certify the equipment as safe and accurate for use. Interestingly... It's never been certified as accurate. And uh, he, yeah. he, he certified it as safe, whatever that means. Uh, yeah, safe, but he doesn't say accurate. Interesting, uh, because, you know, even if um, one might argue that the uh, systems are somehow safe from outside intruders, and we know that's not the case, the same concerns really exist from insider manipulation, do they not, as well? Oh, I mean, absolutely. It doesn't take a hacker to, uh, to manipulate these systems, right? It, oh, it, it certainly doesn't, um, and, um, and there are many people who have uh, a lot of access to these systems. And then it's really hard to tell the insiders from the outsiders, Brad. Um, did you take the case of the stolen poll books? Did you happen mm-hmm. to see that uh, in the April 18th um, original election that mm-hmm. was you know, before the runoff, right. um, that just three days before the uh, April 18th election day, that four express poll books were stolen from a poll manager's truck. Mm -hmm. First of all, he shouldn't have had them running around in his truck. They were stolen, and um, the Secretary of State announced, or the AJC, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, announced that that they had been recovered. Turns out they hadn't been recovered. Nobody knows whatever happened to them. And... Yes. They, so they were never found. Yeah, I had heard that they had been recovered. But well, well, in yeah. fact, Secretary Kemp apparently uh, had a ceremony down at the state capitol to honor the policeman who had purportedly recovered the equipment. 
all of this seems to be a sham. The equipment was never recovered. And they you, took the thief's word for where the equipment was in a landfill. In a land, and it was never found. And those systems were they never found even, in the landfill. They didn't even look for it, as far as I can tell. And it was also it certainly was never found. It's also interesting because Kemp uh, mm-hmm. took a number of days before he even let the public know that those uh, systems had been stolen. I think they were like stolen on a Saturday, and then it was the Monday before the Tuesday primary, if I recall. And, and the, the county did not let his office know for a few days. So the publics had been out there missing. They not only had voter registration data, the Social Security number, driver's license number, not only did they have private information, but they also had uh, programming that programs the voter access cards. And those are used to access the uh, the, the DREs, the touch and screens. Cast your vote. Right, yeah. and they can easily be forged from from the uh, express poll books, as well as somebody could have taken them and manipulated probably the voter registration system as well. Yeah. So, um, you know, what you you raised this in a way talking about insiders and mm-hmm. uh, versus outsiders. You know, here we had an insider be extremely reckless with the equipment, and then it's picked up by an outsider, if you will, and who knows what happened to it. So, um, you know, it's not just hackers that, yeah. that have, that where our, our equipment, the information is all at risk here. And, um, you know, I don't think that we should take comfort in the idea of, oh, it was just the voter registration. System. Yeah, no, it was obviously more <laughs> than that. Uh, and, uh, you know, w- what came of it, we don't know. And this seems like just another reason to challenge all of this. And yet, uh, as, as a Republican yourself, or at least someone who ran as one in Colorado, I don't know if you still consider... I'm, I'm st- I am still a Republican. Okay. Sometimes I'm not a very happy Republican these days, I, but I, 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 I am still registered as a Republican. All right, so as a registered Republican, well, A, uh, first, do you, do you think that this election was stolen from the Democratic candidate, John Ossoff, or is this uh, just a point that we can't know? We cannot know. I wouldn't dare say that it was stolen. And but I wouldn't say that it, that it was won by Karen Handel either. No one can know. Has either the local Democratic Party or the national DNC or the DCCC or any of those folks asked to intercede in some way to join this suit in any mm-hmm. way? Uh, do no, no, no. You would you would think from the behavior of both parties, not mm-hmm. just the Democrats, but from both parties, uh, you would think they never heard of this before. Neither party has said one word. And and you know, I think that for so long, both parties have been complicit in permitting this equipment to be used election after election, knowing full well what the problems are. And they didn't, I, I presume they also did not join in any way on the initial suit that was dis- <coughs> dismissed just before the election either, correct? Uh, they, they act like they never heard of it. By the way, Brad, yeah. one of our, uh, one of our pl- other plaintiffs is uh, very conservative. He's the head of the Constitution Party in Georgia, mm-hmm. certainly not a Democrat, and um, you know, usually votes for Republicans, I think, if, if uh, there's no Constitution Party member on the ballot. And then we have members of our of our coalition for good governance mm-hmm. who literally also campaigned for Karen Handel, who very much support this lawsuit. Well, so it wasn't just about it wasn't just about winning. 
they believe we're doing the right thing, even though it may well overturn their candidate's victory. Good to know and good to hear. Marilyn Marks, uh, stand by. i got to take a quick break, but I want to come back and ask you about some jurisdictional issues on this lawsuit that I think will be very, very difficult to overcome, at least uh, if we look at election contests past exactly like this. Uh, well, let me take a quick break. We'll come back and talk about that uh, and whether Congress is going to toss this entire thing out no matter what the courts and the voters of Georgia say. Marilyn Marks is going to stay with us. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Little black boxes in cute little rows A screen that says touch me so cheerfully glows No paper trail, a make-believe pole Cast your vote down the memory hole Yeah, I guess it is Little black box where your little vote goes Down and down the memory hole Oh, where, oh, where did your little vote go? Where? Where has it gone? Nobody knows That's the problem, nobody knows Welcome back Little black Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yes, we are talking about the June 20th election for U.S. House in the state of Georgia in Georgia's 6th Congressional District. Uh, And results that some are questioning after the Democratic candidate was up ahead in all of the polls, only to lose by four points, as reported by the 100% unverifiable touchscreens still used shamefully across the state of Georgia. I'm speaking with Marilyn Marks, executive director of the Coalition for Good Governance, uh, about her lawsuit and uh, that with uh, about six other plaintiffs at this point, bipartisan lawsuit, tripartisan, I guess, if you include the Constitution Party in there, uh, against the uh, state of Georgia, hoping to dismiss the results of the June 20 um, U.S. House special election between John Ossoff and Karen Handel. Um, to, to uh, replace one of Trump's nominees, who uh, it was uh, Tom Price, I guess, wasn't it correct, down there? Correct, <laughs> okay, correct. I, uh, hard to keep track at this point. Um, Marilyn, was your is your uh, this latest suit now uh, seeking to dismiss the results and and I guess hold a new election? Is it filed in state or federal court? This is filed in state court, and the reason, Brad, is that on election contest, mm-hmm. um, the the instructions are to file them in state court, and you might be interested to know. In Georgia, um, we get to demand a jury trial. 
so there will be a jury trial of um, the facts here, well, and um, a jury will decide whether or not to overturn this election. Well, now, uh, I have some jurisdictional questions. First, uh, okay. why, why was your original suit dismissed in uh, just a day or two, I think, after we last uh, spoke on air? Why was that? It was largely technical grounds, but can you quickly explain why the right. judge dismissed Right. Georgia has some very strong laws about sovereign immunity, where it is difficult to sue the um, to sue officials in their official capacity. And um, now we believe that the court got it wrong on some of the claims, um, the uh, claims where the secretary was to be ordered to go ahead and reexamine the equipment. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, you know, there was no time to appeal right. and get anything done in time. So we're renewing that claim in a new lawsuit, and we have some new plaintiffs joining for the purposes of that that claim, um, but it was primarily sovereign immunity. But but the court also was pretty clear that uh, it was so late in the game, mm-hmm. and she told us this in the courtroom that it was so late in the game, and by that by the time we finally got in front of her, early voting had already started. And as you know, courts are very hesitant to change the rules. As, while, while an election is going Sure, on. And, and understandably, for good reason, but do you have confidence that this suit will get around those uh, yes. sovereign immunity issues we this do. time? You do. We do, because we will make sure that we, um, we argue effectively that, the, that uh, mm-hmm. sovereign immunity does not apply in these mandamus claims. As well, we have sued... Um, all of these election officials in their official and their individual capacity. And um, as well, the Georgia statute calls for, in in an election contest, which is, you know, we were not doing a contest before, of course, Mm -hmm. because it hadn't, the election had not been held. Now we're doing an election contest, and the statute itself calls for the plaintiffs to sue the officials. So... Um, there should not be a sovereign immunity problem when the statute itself calls for suing the officials. Okay. So we're not worried worried about sovereign immunity this time. Okay, so uh, we get past, uh, hopefully, the jurisdictional issues in Georgia itself. That said, now, um, here's my concern, because I've covered, I've reported on similar cases in the past at bradblog.com, uh, out here in, in California, special U.S. House races, and in Florida, for example. And in those cases, the U.S. House uh, Congress, the U.S. House Administrative Committee, informed the state judge, I'm thinking of the one back here, and specifically in 2006 in California, uh, they wrote to the state judge uh, to tell that judge that once a, a, a member has been seated, Incredibly enough, any election contest must take place in the U.S. House, not in the state, according to their reading of the Constitution's Article 1, Section 5, stating each house shall be the judge of the elections, returns, and qualifications of its members. In other words, once a a member has been seated, it is no longer up to the voters or the courts back in the states, the voters of the courts in Georgia, as they will likely see it. So... Has Karen Handel already, she's already been seated by Paul Ryan in the Republican House, correct? She has been seated, that's correct. So are you concerned that that means no, uh, this No, no, but it was something that we thoroughly researched um, before we filed. 
and um, of course, we're not going to talk about legal strategy on on the air, mm-hmm. but I'll say it's something that we thoroughly researched, and we think that in Georgia we have a little bit different situation than some of the cases that you mentioned before. So we're confident that we will get through that issue. Oh, well, that that's good to know because they've been very strong about that in the past, and it it has always it amazed me when I first you know came to understand this that uh, Congress back then it was Dennis Hastert. Uh, I believe, who was uh, seating these uh, members very quickly after the election in order to sort of undercut any election contest that might happen back in state court. I mean, in that case, I think it was before the uh, uh, the election had even been certified in California, the uh, the candidate was seated. So well, I, I hope you guys are, are dealing with that. But even if even if you lose on uh, for some reason on on those grounds, the other two grounds should stay in place, right? You're prohibiting right. the use of uh, touchscreens in, in the upcoming November elections? Right, right, and forcing the secretary to examine the equipment. And we know that he cannot, in good faith, find this equipment to meet the requirements of the law. And um, so, yes, we, we are in, in the court on several different claims, and, um, you know, we expect there to be a full opportunity for the problems... with this equipment to be heard and um, decided on by the court and the public will gain a lot of information as a result. And by the way, in terms of um, the House seating the members, Mm -hmm. in this case it's not Paul Ryan who's making the decision. Um, The Georgia law literally has the provision that the moment that the Secretary of State certifies the election then that that information is presented for uh, the swearing in of the uh, Congress member or, or, or of any of any yeah. officer. So it's Georgia law. You know, some states uh, actually require that the protest period run with no protest file. Excuse me, not protest, either protest or contest. Mm-hmm. Um, that the contest period run before the member is seated. That's not the way it works in Georgia. So, in other words, as soon as they certify the election, that officer, that official is, uh, is, is good to go, is good to be sworn in, even though the election contest period continues for a number of days thereafter? That's, that's correct. She was sworn in, as far as I can tell, within minutes of Brian Kemp certifying the returns. Which makes the and, contest uh, period kind of a joke, it seems to me. Well, um, in in a way, it certainly does. It certainly does, because uh, one would think that um, you don't want, whether it's Congress or the governor or your state representative or mm-hmm. your mayor, that you don't want the wrong person, if, if you can prove that someone else won, you wouldn't want this person um, sitting in that office with official duties. I've got... I've got, uh, Marilyn, just a, a minute or two here uh, left here, but I want to get your thoughts on this because I don't know whether uh, the Georgia Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, has yet replied uh, or responded to your to your suit, uh, but he did in a USA Today op-ed, uh, sort of, uh, last week, blaming the news media for developing <laughs> uh, false narratives about Russian hacking and potential vulnerabilities in the system. These, these are quotes from him. The prevailing plot line is that states like Georgia can't provide suitable security for elections. Well, uh, how do you respond? How do you respond to Brian Kemp there? Georgia is the poster child for 
unbelievably lax security and inviting in with a welcome mat any bad actors who want to walk in. I mean, our experts have said to the court in the previous case, one after the other after the other, look, this, this security is so lax in Georgia that you must presume that the system has been compromised. You cannot rely on the votes that come out of these machines. Marilyn, before I let you go, you're, you're a Republican, as we noted. Uh, that said, what do you think of Democrats seemingly ab- ignoring these concerns for so many years, not just in Georgia, but, you know, all across the country, frankly, and not to mention Republicans ignoring them as well? How, how do you explain that? I'm asked that all the time, and I, never seems like a good answer, but I'll take yours. Well, okay. I would say that both are, are equally bad at this because the system elects some Democrats and some Republicans, and they tend to look at it as, well, any system that elected me must be okay. Yep. In fact, it must be perfect if it elected me. And I think that this is where there's a huge disconnect between the political class and the average voter. The average voter wants a fair, verifiable system yep. where they vote with a secret ballot. And you know, I'm, a, I'm afraid that their uh, officials, the elected representatives, don't see it the same way. I'm afraid they don't either. Uh, so glad to have uh, folks like you and the Coalition for Good Governance, which people can find at coalitionforgoodgovernance.org, uh, trying at least to hold their feet to the fire. Uh, you can also find them on the Twitters at C, that's the letter C, GoodGov, on Twitter. And uh, you can find Marilyn herself on Twitter as well at Marilyn R. Marks, the number one. Marilyn, uh, really appreciate all the work that you're doing out there. I hope you will stay in touch with us uh, as this moves forward. Thank you so much. We appreciate your advocacy for this important important issue. Thanks, Marilyn. We'll talk to you soon. I guess I just had to keep saying it. Elections matter. (laughs) <laughs> elections have consequences and the, you know the fact that the democratic party uh and the republican still. party still don't have any concerns about this apparently we can have 100 unverifiable elections and everything just moves forward as if it's fine oh he was going to win but she ended up winning instead oh well who knows if it's right or wrong let's go ahead and swear them in seat them and move on to the next election and you know This has hurt Republicans, but it also hurts uh, Democrats a lot, it seems, at least, election after election. And as Marilyn says, who knows? Who knows if the results were right? Maybe they were exactly right. But the fact that we can never know continues to be a shame to this... uh otherwise great country of ours. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. Of course, to my guest, Marilyn Marks of CoalitionForGoodGovernance.org. And to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can uh, find us, follow us, and share us worldwide. Let everyone else know about these problems uh, on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. You can also drop me a mail. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And thanks to those of you who helped us put some gas in the tank of the Prius by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.